The following audio is from a sermon series called Recalibrate. In this sermon series, we take a look at the DNA of Sacred City Church, the identities and rhythms that are given to us in the gospel, and how we live together in community and on mission. For more information on Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, please visit scmoline.com. Well, the last few weeks, we have been in a sermon series called Recalibrate, and the first part of this sermon series has really been dedicated to unpacking our identity. Uh, and we talk a lot about identity with actually not, without saying identity. I was at a, an event this week at the Figgy, um, and I, with a lot of young professionals, people who are you know, networking, and the first question that's always asked, well, I mean, your name, and then it's like, well, what do you do, right? And, and these questions are really just prompting uh, identity language. Who are you? What do you do? It's, it seems like those two questions are linked together. Now, the problem with basing our identity on what we do is that when you stop doing those things, it hurls you into an identity crisis. Now, I spent... Most of my life as a musician, I still think I'm kind of a musician, but I spent a lot of my life, I, my schooling was all towards music, and, and I did music 24-7. I mean, I always had music in my ears. If I was in the classroom, I was thinking about music, composition and studies and, and execution of playing music. It, it, that was literally what my identity was based on for such a long time to the point where I got burnt out on it, which is another story. But I came to the point where I... I, I graduated, I wasn't in any ensembles anymore, I wasn't playing regularly, and it came to this realization, like, I don't think I'm a musician anymore, right? That, or, not that I'm not a musician, but I'm not doing it. And so it sent me kind of like on, the, on this discovery of, like, who am I? If I'm not a musician, who am I? And that led for a really sweet season of understanding my identity in the gospel, not in what I do, but in who God has made me. And we see in the gospel that we are defined and identified not by what we do, but rather we're defined by what Christ has done for us. As we profess this morning or confess sin today, we were once dead in our sins from our own doing. We were walking in the patterns and the tendencies of this fallen world. But now through God's redeeming power of the gospel, we are made alive in Jesus. Now, a lot of times when we think about this, you know, Jesus died for my sins, now I'm cool with God. That's, that's justification language, that we've been made right with God, that we're credited with his righteousness, and now we have this all-access pass to the kingdom of God, which is true. That's true. That, that absolutely does happen. We come to the end of our life. We will join. We'll be reunited with our Father in heaven. But getting our identity from Jesus not only changes where we spend eternity, it changes how we live life now. Our eternity begins right now. And I think that this is a major misconception hindering the vitality and the vibrancy of church. It's actually holding us back from living into our full potential as a church. Now, when we get our identity from Jesus in the gospel, when we understand who we are, who God has made us to be, it starts, eternity starts right now. We start living as a family as missionaries, as servants and learners. And as we live as a, a missionary family of servant learners, what happens is we catch glimpses of or we get to portray the kingdom of God. Like this is what, what Jesus is telling us to pray on, as earth, on earth as it is in heaven. 
right? These, these glimpses of the kingdom of God among God's people. Now, the thing about this that's really cool is that you don't have to be in or near a church building for these manifestations to happen. See, this stuff happens in the everyday rhythms of life. Wherever you go, this identity goes with you. Now, the question is if you're living into that identity or not. Right? If, you, if you understand who you are, then you're going to live into that identity. But a lot of times we, we get confused or we revert back to our old identities. And as we live into these identities, what happens is that we begin to live life in rhythms. Right? There's a pattern, there's, there's, there's a rhythm that develops as we really lean into these identities. And as we live our lives in these rhythms, what we develop is this thing called gospel intentionality. That, that every moment, every second that we're breathing, we have a heartbeat, is an opportunity to live into these identities. And sometimes it means sharing the gospel with other people, right? Being missionaries. Sometimes it means learning and, and, and absorbing God's word and hearing other people's stories and how God's at work through that. But we develop these intentionalities with the things that we're already doing. You don't need to come to faith and completely change your whole life, right? No, it changes how you do the life you're already doing. You go into work as missionaries. You live life as families now. There are things that are going to change. But there's stuff that you're already doing. Take eating, for example. Right? You eat roughly 21 times a week. Now, what would it look like if you started leaning into your, your family identity or your missionary identity and, and just focusing on the rhythm of eating? Right? You're not adding anything new to your schedule. But as family, you might start inviting some of your church family around your dinner table. Right? As a missionary, you're going to invite unbelievers. And you know what? You could even, two birds, one stone, invite both people over at the same time. Right? Be a missionary and family. Because the hope is as you're living on mission towards people is that they come to know Jesus and they join your family. Now this can be applied to our rhythms of celebrating. If you're in a family, you're gonna celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, big milestones, right? How do you do that as the family of God, right? You invite people in on that. Your church family, your MC family, you invite people in on that. As a missionary, you invite unbelievers, your neighbors, your friends, coworkers in on that too. You can do this with, with recreating at the gym, your hobbies, your interests. There's all kinds of opportunities for us to be intentional in our gospel identities. This even changes how we study the Bible because no longer is it this individualistic, like God told me this or, or this is what I hear from God. It's we can, we can together grow in our understanding of who God is and what he has for us. Now the thing that's really incredible like we're all individuals here, right? We're all trying to, we've got our own past. We're trying to live our own lives. But as we do this collectively, as we grow into our gospel identities together with consistent rhythms, a gospel culture is created. Right? As we gather as family and scatter as missionaries to live in normal lives with gospel intentionality, we create a gospel culture, and the, and the aim of a gospel culture is to make disciples who make disciples. Now, this type of community, this culture is both internally focused, 
in the sense of we want to care for the people who are here. We want to love the people who are in our living rooms and we're sharing our lives with together. We want to be open and vulnerable and caring towards each other. But that's not where it ends. See, that extends beyond our own little invisible borders to those people who are outside of our family. Right? We're also externally focused and thinking about who can I invite into this? We're reaching out. We're sharing our lives. We're sharing the gospel. We're blessing others intentionally. We're praying for those people who are not yet believers. Now, the most attractive thing, and I think we really have to fight to believe this because there's a lot of competing ideas out there, but the most attractive thing on earth to all human beings is a gospel culture. Because a gospel culture is the closest thing to heaven on earth. Right? This is, again, a portrayal of what the kingdom of God is like. And people want in on this. Because this is a place where people are accepted at their worst and then loved to their best. Where the full potential is brought out of them. Where all people are welcome. In fact, Ephesians 4, if you want to open up your Bibles with me, Ephesians chapter 4 begins by, by laying out some characteristics, some traits of what this gospel culture looks like. And take a look here at verses, uh, verses 1 through 3. We'll start there. Paul starts, therefore, or I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now notice this. Now, he, this is, again, identity. Live in your identity. Operate out of what's already been given to you in the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And here's how you do it. With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now just envision this type of community for a moment. Doesn't this sound nice? Like unity and carried and peace and togetherness, patience, a, a love that's consistent. Right? That, all, that all sounds nice. That sounds like a place where I want to be. Now while the gospel culture is naturally created and desired by us as we collectively live in our gospel identities, this is not an easy thing to obtain. This is really hard work. To, to, to be thoughtful and intentional about creating a gospel and, uh, culture, this is hard work. This is why Paul has to remind the people here in, in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which they've received because they've probably forgotten. They've been de de deterred to a different identity, operating that, which then creates a different culture. Right? And so Paul is calling them to, to remember their identity. In remembering their identity, live out of the rhythms. And as you do it together, you're going to create a gospel culture focused on making disciples who make disciples. Disciples. 
But why does Paul have to say this? Like, why does he have to remind them? If this is something that kind of naturally happens, why does he have to say it? And in, the, in the town that I grew up in, there was a park. And in this park, you know, the normal stuff, swing set, playground, whatever, but, but there was a merry-go-round. And we would, we would just get that thing going fast. I mean, first you run with it, you know, running alongside of it, going around and around and around. And then it gets to the point where you can't keep up with it. And so you have to stand there and whack it. You know what I'm talking about? And you get it going and you try to jump onto it. You jump onto it and, and you're just like holding on and you can feel the, the centrifugal force like just pulling your arms out, right? Barely holding on. And if you were strong enough, you'd pull yourself up and you'd get up onto the merry-go-round. And then you don't just get on the merry-go-round. You try to get to the middle of it, right? And the harder, the closer to the center you get, the harder it becomes, right? Well, first it starts really hard and then it gets incrementally easier. But there's a difficulty in moving to the center. But the thing is, once you get to the center... It seems okay there. Like, you're still spinning around super fast, and you're probably going to throw up in a minute. But, but you don't feel the same kind of force as you do on the outside. Now, think of our walk. Think of, of life in Christ in, in terms of this, right? That if, if being in the center of the merry-go-round is living a, a vibrant, yet, yet imperfect, a vibrant life in your gospel identity, Right? There's, still the, there's still the chaos that's going all around you. Right? There's still stuff that's at work that's trying to like maybe fling you off. Right, Because on the outside, that's what you're holding on to because it's just going to kick you off. But if being centered on our gospel identity is life at the center of the merry-go-round, then, then there's a sense of rest. Right? The striving sort of stops in some ways. There, there's rest. There's peace. You can enjoy it in the middle. You're not worried about getting flung off and cracking your head open. There's a contentment there. Now, if that's what it's like to be in the center, to, to live a vibrant life in your gospel identity, then the force that's trying to pull you off, well, that could easily be pegged as Satan, the world, or the lingering sinful desires that are still in your heart. Right? Those, that those things function as a dark force trying to rip us off of the merry-go-round trying to distract us. Maybe they're trying to pacify us with the lesser joy or beauty than life in Christ. Now ask any Christian, any non-Christian too, and they'll tell you that in some way, shape, or form that they desire to live a life, to experience life at the center of the merry-go-round. People don't want to be driven by, by the opinions of others. Right, that stuff can just breeze past them. They don't want to be controlled by their anger. They want better self-control, security, joy, a sense of belonging. We want peace and affirmation. We want a means to improve ourselves, to enhance our relationships, the ability to forgive. Now, the answer to all of these longings is found in the person and work of Jesus to really grasp on to our identity in the gospel. In the past, and still pretty common today, 
the responsibility for helping people get to the center of the merry-go-round, right, comfortable in their identity in Christ, has been viewed almost exclusively as a pastor's job. Right? It's common in many churches where Christians show up, they participate in Sunday worship, maybe a small group throughout the week, they cut their tithes, and then they expect the professionals to handle the work of the ministry, right? Helping people become more solidified in their gospel identity. Now, it sounds convenient, right? But it's terribly unbiblical. And, and, and living this way, having this sort of leadership paradigm or ministry paradigm, however you want to say it, will absolutely stunt, if not collapse the church. See, the church won't grow. The people will become very discontent. And there are some, a few major issues with this model that I'd just like to highlight real quickly. See, the first thing is that's wrong with this model, that if you're just showing up on Sunday mornings and the work of the ministry happens on Sunday mornings, the problem with that is you need the gospel more than just Sundays. Do you eat many, like, multiple times a week, Right? You have a hunger in your soul that's stronger than the physical hunger for food. So we need the gospel. Our, our, our need for the gospel doesn't just come in weekly bursts. It comes moment by moment, day by day. And if Sundays are the only time that we're being ministered to, that we're being reminded of the gospel, then you are, like, chances are you're living life on the edge of the merry-go-round, just barely hanging on. Maybe you've already been flung off. The other problem with this is that in most churches, at least our size, there's just one pastor and so many people in the pews. And with that ratio, it makes it impossible to care for everyone. MIT uh, did a study, this is probably two years ago at this point, a study about relationship capacity, like how many relationships can a person have that are meaningful and the different tiers of relationships, right? And if you're on Facebook, maybe you've got like a couple hundred friends, maybe a thousand friends, whatever. You know, it's like, can you be friends with a thousand people? Uh, no, you can't. But this research was very interesting because what, what it found was that you can only have five really close and really intimate friends. Like that's all the bandwidth you have as a human being. And then the next ring is maybe this, ten Maybe 10 people that you know kind of intimately, not as, not as intimately as those five people, maybe your spouse and a few people, maybe your fight club would be that inner circle. And then you've got 10 people, could be your missional community, at least part of your missional community. And beyond that, there's a, another ring of about 35 people that you can know and kind of keep up with. And that's kind of set within a network of about 150. It seems like research is saying that we can, basically know 150 people in a semi-meaningful way. Now, if this is true, which I think it's true from my own experience, I know I've got a limited bandwidth, then this changes what ministry looks like. See, if Jesus was only intimate and discipled 12 men, then it's unrealistic to expect a pastor to pastor a church of 60, 70, 80, 100, 300. It doesn't work that way. Another problem with this is that any given pastor is not Jesus. I hope that's not a shock to anybody. 
Now, hopefully they're Christ-like, and like Paul, they can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But this pastor is limited in his giftedness, in his personality. He's limited in wisdom and understanding, even compassion and care. Because not only does he want to pastor and stuff, he's got his own sin that he's dealing with that's also working. The self-absorption that we all have, the pastor might even have it even more. Not to mention the personality piece that maybe there's some people who aren't receptive of the pastor's personality, doesn't like his preaching. It doesn't like the way he goes about talking to people. In order to, to pastor people, in order to lead and minister to people effectively, we don't just need one voice speaking. We need a, a, a community of people speaking into our lives. We need the collective wisdom and grace that God has given us together as a community. Now, this model of the, the pastor, the vocational pastor as the one doing the ministry, I hope you can see that this is a broken paradigm. It doesn't work for pastors. They'll probably burn out. Maybe have five good years of ministry and it's like, see you later, because that guy went crazy. It doesn't work for the congregation because there's all these unrealistic expectations that don't get met and you feel like I'm just not being cared for. So it's not going to work in that way. But more importantly, this paradigm robs God's people from doing what God has designed them to do. It'd be like taking shoelaces from Usain Bolt, or draining Michael Phelps' pool, taking away the gifts and the ability to use those gifts. Now, every Christian has a gift or a trait that is meant to be exercised. In fact, we had, uh, last, this weekend, we had the Relational Soul Seminar. Some of you were here for this. It was incredible. It was so good. Talking about how God has uniquely wired us and gifted us and how, what it looks like to live into those gifts and to utilize them, leverage them for the kingdom to grow, not only in our strengths, but in our weaknesses also. Now, these gifts are meant to be exercised and used for the building up and the mat maturation of the church. See, this is what Paul goes on to say in verse 7 of our passage. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men and women. Now, skip, we'll skip verses 9 and 10 here. He kind of goes on a little tangent. But what this means is that everyone has been gifted. There is no such thing as an ungifted Christian. If you keep reading and you'll see to the measure of grace, right? That, that's a term, to the, to the measure of grace of Christ. And it's, when we read this, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to believe. Like I think when I first read this, I thought in terms of volume. To the measure, we think of measuring cups, fill it up a cup full or two cups, right? God just gave more gifts to some people and less to others. But the measure of grace isn't a quantitative number. It's a qualitative. There are different qualities and traits among the body. There's different variations. And he goes down to verse 11. And he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And you look at that, and those are all like church leader type giftings. 
Okay, and let me just walk through these to help you, a little bit of handles to put on those things. Apostles, now there, there are capital A apostles like disciples and Paul, right? First century apostles who led the church, kicked it off through the power of the Spirit. And then there are lower A, lower capital or lowercase a apostles, those who are movement leaders. They're the prophets, not in capital P prophets, not like Isaiah or Malachi or those guys, but, but people who, who speak the truth when it's unpopular. There are the evangelists who are so gifted at sharing the gospel, whether, whether it be from a pulpit or just in the pastoral ministry, caring for people, living life. They're the shepherds who are the pastors and the caregivers who care about the state of people's hearts. And they're the teachers who are, who are passionate about teaching God's ways. Now all of those are church leader type positions. And of course, it's not just isolated to people who are vocationally in ministry, right? This is spread out. But these aren't, this list isn't exhaustive of the gifts. If you keep reading in verse 12, you can see what they're given for. He says, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Do you see that? The pastor's primary job is not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints for that work. Now, who are the saints? Right? You need a funky hat and a robe to be a saint? No. The saints are those who believe the gospel, that they've been credited with Christ's righteousness. Now that means that God invites everyone who believes the gospel to share in the work of ministry, right? This is every member ministry. And this is the beauty of God using crooked sticks to draw straight lines. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do for a living, where you're at in life, even how old you are in the faith. God has gifted you. He has called you and equipped you for the work of ministry. And you might be nervous. You're thinking, you know, maybe I'm going to call you up to have you preach next week or something. I'm not going to do that. Right? Because that's the equipping work of the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, the shepherds. That's the equipping work. And I have a friend that calls that the air game. And usually that's sort of public, visual, uh, uh, visible ministry. Usually that's sort of... uh, vocational ministers, or even lay elders who are living in that equipping ministry. But every Christian, even those who are doing the equipping, are called to do the ground game, right? The work of the ministry. Now, ministry is the long game of relationships that either gets people on the merry-go-round or gets them closer to the center, that's what ministry is. It's helping others get to the center, center of the merry ground, becoming who they are meant to be in Christ. And we have to realize that, that as we go out and we're ministering to people, that different people are at different, space, different spots on life. Like some people are, are maybe like watching the merry go round and they're like, maybe I want to be part of this. Maybe I don't. I'm still trying to figure it out. There's people who are, who are on the merry-go-round that are just hanging on for dear life. There's some people who think they're on the merry-go-round, but really they're over by the swing sets. Right? They're just clueless. There's people who have maybe taken big strides toward the center and they've had like the last three years have been like 
centimeter growth at a time. They're just discouraged. People who are maybe living in this gospel identity and they need to be convinced or, or encouraged that it's still worth it. Right? People are at different places on the playground. And the work of the ministry is helping them fight against the dark forces that either want to pull them off or keep them off this merry-go-round. And what this looks like to do the work of the ministry, there's some really practical things that we do right, in our giftings, but to do the work of the ministry is ultimately to remind them of the truth of the gospel, to either display it in a way that they look at you and go, oh, that reminds me of how Jesus is, or, or to actually communicate the way that Jesus is. And as we believe the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, it gives us peace in the chaos. It gives us rest in the rigor. It grounds us in the gospel. Now, as Americans, we are wired to want fast and big and now. Right? That's, that's what success is defined by everywhere else. Right? You, you start a company, right? that's what success looks like, fast and big and now. But the kingdom of God is not like that. And it takes time. The work of ministry takes a lot of time. There's a reason why Jesus would use agrarian, like farming analogies to tell people about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You grow it, it's a itty bitty thing. But over time it grows and grows and grows and grows. See, if we want to see if we want to see people move toward the center of the merry-go-round, it's going to take time. If we want to see people get on the merry-go-round, it's going to take time. And this is why verses 2 and 3 are so important, understanding what it takes to make a gospel culture, right? provide an environment where people want to grow, become more like Jesus. Because this is a culture of gentleness, of patience, of love and unity and humility. There's a pastor who says, the only way real gospel change happens is if you have safety plus time plus gospel. That's the only way people can have meaningful, lifelong, lasting change. Safety plus gospel plus time. And the aim of ministry for all of us is to be mature in Christ. Like it's not just about Converts and people coming to know the grace of Jesus. Yes, we want that, but that's just the beginning. See, Paul's aim is here to, to make us mature in Christ, to be mature. Look at verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14 here. He says, He's given all the teachers and whatever to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And jump forward, he talks about growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body uh, I lost my spot. Home body is joined together and held together by every, by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, the body grows so that it may build itself up in love. 
See, that's the aim of ministry, to be mature, to share. So, so that means this. There's two things. That God is, ultimately God is growing the body. He's doing this in two ways. One, he's adding to our numbers. That there are people in our city who are not yet here part of this body. God is calling them, inviting them to be part. But this also means that the people who are here now, we're growing in maturity. We're growing in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. We're we're being solidified in our gospel identities, moving closer to the center of the merry-go-round. And in this way, ministry is a lifelong endeavor. Right? Our whole life is devoted to the work that God is doing. He says, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son. Now this is gonna happen in our homes, at work, in the gyms, through our kids' activities. These are the places where ministry is happening. But the question is, what does this exactly look like, right? When you get specific, right? What are the gifts that Jesus has given to men for this ministry work? Now, a lot of people, when they think about gifts, that a lot of people are very self-dismissive and say, God hasn't gifted me with anything. How arrogant. God has totally gifted you, but the, but the problem is usually it's right under nose. You don't see it. And most of the time, they're not these extravagant, over-the-top giftings. They're subtle and necessary giftings that must be here for the church to function right. Gifts of mercy, Caring for people who need help. The gift of administration. Helping organize people to do a job effectively. Giving and generosity. Some of you have been blessed with big paychecks. Praise God. I said this a couple weeks ago. Use that money as a missionary weapon to blow holes in the gates of hell. That's how you serve your church. Discernment. Knowing what's true, what's not true. Helping. Evangelism, hospitality, man, that's one of the greatest gifts. If you have the gift of hospitality, bless your soul because we need people like you. Faith. Now these gifts show others what Jesus is like, right? There's something about these gifts that say, that points us to Jesus. Like if you have a gift of mercy, who is the most merciful person on earth? Jesus was. You have the gift of hospitality? Who, who made prostitutes and tax collectors feel welcome? Jesus did. Those gifts point to Jesus and people walk away from experiencing those gifts and practice and they go, that was special. I felt this yesterday. At lunch, there's some really servant-hearted people serving our lunch downstairs. We walk away, man, that is the grace of God right there to point me to what Jesus is like. So we have all these, this variety of gifts in the body, but the shared gift of all Christians is found right at the beginning of verse 15. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. There's no designated time or location for this gift to be used. Happens anywhere. Happens everywhere. Right? You, when you hear a friend share doubts and fears and their insecurities, their anxieties, to, to share with you the burden of their sin, 
that's an opportunity to step into their world and speak truth and love. A lot of people think of this as some sort of confrontational, like let's go head to head and battle it out. That's not it. Speaking truth and love, helping them move toward the center of the merry-go-round. Those are opportunities loaded with gospel intentionality, times where we can do ministry. Because underneath these things, these doubts, these fears, anxieties, sins, whatever, remains an area of unbelief where the only remedy is to set our belief on something greater in the person and work of Jesus. And so in this sense, everyone we know is to some degree an unbeliever. That's why we confess our sin every Sunday together because we have functioned out of unbelief. So the remedy to this is going back to Jesus, going to the gospel, reclaiming our gospel identity to meet people where they're at and to apply the healing balm of the gospel. And this work of the ministry is relational work. Right, the essence of ministry is relationship. It's not in programs and, and food drives and th- like that's a way to serve and bless, but the essence of ministry happens in relationships. Nothing meaningful happens for the kingdom of God that is detached from relationship because God himself is a relational God and he has made us to be relational beings. So in this sense, we share our lives. Not only do we share the gospel, not only do we share the truth, but we share our lives as a form of ministry. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, the people, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, not only the truth of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. That's relationship language. You see, your life and the gospel are meant to be shared to help others move in on the center of that merry-go-round, to become who they are in Christ. And so that's why we say the only way to make disciples, the only way to minister to people is in community and on mission. Now, I'm coming to close here. If I were able to just conquer your fears, to, to pump you up, get you hyped up, send you out, let's go minister to our city. Right, that'd be fun but it would just take a moment for you to realize how incapable you are at doing the the work of ministry consistently. (laughs) Become frustrated that the change that you're working for doesn't actually stick or if it happens at all. You become discouraged, you become worn out. If you're trying to do this in your own strength, ministry will start to feel impossible. No longer is it, this is where the merry-go-round illustration breaks down because you can fight your way through uh, a merry-go-round. What this is more like is like, I don't know, Adventureland people, uh, what's it called, the silly silo. Anybody ever been on that? The thing that swirls so fast. I mean, so fast the floor drops out and you're still pinned up against the wall and you can't even peel your head up. It's the force is so strong. See, that's the reality of the weight of ministry. If you're trying to do it by yourself, you can't even take care of yourself and move yourself to the center of the the mirror girl. And how are you going to do it to somebody else? There has to be a power from outside yourself working to make this stuff happen. See, and this is the beauty of this passage because here in verse 4 is where we find the answer to this. It says, there's one body, there's one church, And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, 
He goes on a little tangent here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. For the work of the ministry, God is in you. That is crazy, guys. It's funny, I had been talking with some people last week and we're, we're talking about the spirit in us and, and what the spirit does and how crazy that is. And, and, and there was this quote from a book, I can't remember what it was or anything, but, but there's this, this idea of people get into heaven and they meet King David and they're gonna be like, David, tell us what it was like to slay Goliath with a pebble. But that's backwards. What, what it's like, it's gonna be like, David has come to us and he's gonna be, tell me what it was like to have the person of God in you. David didn't have that. Here we have that through the power of the spirit that's indwelling with us. Now this is good news. Usually when we talk about good news, we talk about Jesus going to the cross, dying for our sins. Yes, that's true. But here's the good news for the work of ministry, that the spirit is in us, helping us, guiding us, sustaining us. In fact, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, that is what made us receptacles for the the spirit of God to move in. To, to be in us. Where Jesus gathers himself, one body of believers, the spirit is filling the body of believers. Now what this means, I'm wrapping up. I said that once already, but it means you're not alone when you're doing ministry. Wherever you go, the spirit is with you. Jesus promised uh, as he was getting ready to ascend up into heaven, he says, behold, I'll be with you till the end of the age. And then he like disappears. What? No, Jesus went away because he could give us somebody greater who could not just be with us, but be in us. And so he sent us the Holy Spirit who is referred to as the helper. And to call the Holy Spirit the helper implies that there are places in your life where you are weak and insufficient, where you need a power that is not your own, whether that's to resist sin personally or to live into the ministry that God's called you to. See, in those areas of weaknesses, those places where you feel insufficient, that's the Holy Spirit's playground. That's where the Holy Spirit goes to do work. And that's where God shows up and he can show you just how powerful he is. See, God isn't thrown off by your inability. That's where God steps in. Now, the other thing is that the Spirit has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It's a matter of learning how to rely on that Spirit that's in us. See, there's moments where you're gonna be like, God, I'm clueless here. I don't have what it takes. But then God says, come to me, listen to me. I'm speaking to you, I'm in you, I'm sustaining you. I'll be strong in your weaknesses. And don't get this, as you go out to do ministry, don't get this power of God in you confused uh, with forcefulness. The power of God is manifested in gentleness. How crazy is that? In the subtle, small, seemingly insignificant matters, the patience, the humility, that's where the power of God is manifest. See, and there's more good news to the Spirit here. In this lifelong calling of ministry, 
The only way that you cannot get burnt out is if you are living in reliance of this spirit. Now some of us are, are, have been given a big bandwidth to care for other people. Right? And we see all this ministry opportunity around us and we, we oftentimes look at it and we say, I feel crushed underneath of this. And a lot of times we rely on our giftings too much where we push out the need for the Spirit. And so what would you need to do? We need to turn back to the Spirit, realize it's the power of God sustaining us for this lifelong work. And we have to remember this is a marathon, not a sprint. And there's only so much we can do. It's not our job to convict people. It's not our job to convert people. It's not our job to make people grow or to sanctify them or to refresh them. That's God's work. But we get to play a, a, a secondary role in that. Like we, get to, we get to see what God's doing from the front row. See, the work of the ministry that God is so focused on, not just having pastors, but having all people in the body of God, in the, in the church, is solidifying people in their gospel identity, right? which creates rhythms, which creates a culture, of making disciples who make disciples. Now, God was really serious about this, so serious that he gave up his one and only son for this cause. And Jesus was the one who ultimately ministers to us, who looks at us and says, man, you are really far from God. You're, you're not even on the park grounds anymore. You're way out somewhere else. You're across the street. It's like, let me bring you here. Let me drop you in. Let me show you what it's like to be near to God. For Jesus to show us what that's like, Jesus had to be pushed out. He got flung off the merry-go-round for us so we could be brought to the center. That is the beauty of the gospel. We've been brought from the abyss and now we're on God's playground for the work of God's kingdom. And when you understand, when you understand ministry, like, it's not this burdensome work. I mean, there is a burden to it, right? But when we understand the Spirit's role, when we understand that our limited uh, ability in, in actually doing this work, it's not so much a big task or a daunting task. It's like playing in the sandbox. God's doing the work. We, get to, we just get to play along. And this morning, we get to come to the table where we are reminded of the way that Jesus ministered to us, to give up his life for us. And in this meal, we're reminded of how Jesus is here with us now, that he hasn't left us, he hasn't forsaken us, he hasn't sent us to do his dirty work and he's off on a tropical island somewhere chilling out. No, he's here with us in the body and the blood, he's sustaining us. This is, this is, the, this is the meal you need to be sustained in ministry. And God invites us freely. If we have been made in Christ, if our identity is rooted in Christ, we are called to come participate. What a beautiful thing. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and calling us to this work of the ministry and why we are very uh, underqualified. Um, I mean, there's just a long list of things that are wrong with us for this job. But you are so gracious in providing all that we need for life and godliness. You've given us your spirit of power. You've, you've given us our own giftings. 
our own strengths, to show people what Jesus is like, would you help us as a church to create a culture of disciple-making, a gospel culture focused on making disciples who make disciples, helping people move more toward the identity that they already have in Christ and being firm in it? Would you add to our number, Father? Would you bring the pieces of the body that aren't here yet in? Would you send us out as missionaries to go and, and find them? And your spirit would go with us for that work. And would you, for us who are here, would you build us up? Help us to function as the body ought to. That every member is involved in ministry. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.